anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. Hello, hello. What's going on, everybody? Donald Trump here to the rescue once again. I was just listening to him talk. He's doing his uh, nightly presser on the coronavirus and and there are a lot of people out here looking for him to rescue a lot of things, especially oil, which crashed to negative numbers yesterday. We actually went negative for a barrel of oil for May delivery for the first time in the history of mankind yesterday. And that will be the topic of today's show for the most part. But welcome back, everybody. This is the Peddling Fiction Podcast, and I am your host, the voice and soul of so-called fiction, Johnny Profita. Hope everyone's doing all right. Not a whole lot changing on my front. I'm still deep behind enemy lines here in Chicago. The weather is still not very nice. I do have a couple of uh, very big announcements to make in terms of my standard of living, because it has grown by leaps and bounds over the last couple of days. I am happy to report that, for those of you uh, not familiar with the show, I have been complaining since probably the first week of March about a beeping noise, an unidentified beeping noise that appeared to be coming from my neighbor's condo. And weeks were going by, and this thing was still beeping. I don't know what was causing it. And I was starting to go a little crazy, (laughs) crazier than I already am. And, you know, the other day, I don't know if it was Saturday or Sunday, or all these days are just blending together now. I have no idea when this stopped, but the beeping is gone. And the letter that I left on their door like four weeks ago, that's gone. So I don't know if they're home or if they finally got a hold of somebody to go in there and un- and change the battery on whatever was beeping. But man, I I am so happy about that. It it's it, it's a little sad that uh, something so small could bring me so much joy. But I I do not have to listen to a beeping noise every 10 minutes for 10 minutes for the remainder of this quarantine. And, you know, it was only about a month and a half worth of <laughs> worth of beeping noise. So uh, that torture is over. And um, I'm actually, I have a little house guest for the week. I'm taking care of my buddy's dog. My buddy and his wife decided to take their little guy to, um, to the uh, East Coast, over to Hilton Head. For, for I don't know change of scenery they they 
they can't stand it anymore. They needed to get away, and I, I can't say I blame them. I'm getting a little stir-crazy over here. They couldn't take their dog with them, so they asked me to take care of little Archie boy over here. So uh, if I get distracted in the middle of this, it's because he's um, he's come into, <laughs> come into the studio and decided to mess with me. But we'll see if he can uh, calm down for a little bit. He's got a lot of... A lot of spunk, this dog. He's a little Frenchy, and he's a, he's a bundle of energy. I keep taking him on these long walks, trying to get him to to tucker himself out, and it's just not happening. He he comes back from the walk like he looks exhausted while I'm walking him. By the time we get back, his energy has gone up like tenfold from before the walk, and and then he wants to play. And I got to play with him. And I mean, you know, playing with a dog is fun for a while. But I mean, after a few minutes, it's just you're doing the same thing over and over again. I'm just kidding. He's a pleasure to have. I'm enjoying the company. But he is cutting into my productivity quite a bit. So uh, I'm a little late getting this episode out. It's going to be Tuesday night now by the time I get this out to you guys. I normally try to do one earlier in the day, and I, I just can't do it. He's Any free time I have was devoted to him. Oh, also arguing with the uh, Italian villa companies, because as I'm sure a lot of you are aware, I was planning a big family vacation to Italy in the middle of June, uh, mid, mid-June to early July. It was going to be a three-week thing, and it was going to be the first time in decades that the Profita family had had gotten together all in one place. We've grown quite a bit. It was going to be 10 people, and we've never all been outside of the country together. And naturally, once I spend three or four months planning this thing and booking everything, all the flights, all the accommodations, everything's all set up. We have a a once in a a generation, once in, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred years, more than a generation, pandemic. The entire world shuts down, and Italy is a hot spot. And so that entire vacation went down the shitter. And I've been going, trying to get a hold of this one Italian company who was looking really shady until about uh, 9 o'clock this morning when they, they wanted the other 70% of their deposit, right? Because I, I booked this place in October, before any of this craziness started. And you put like $1,700 down. And 60 days out, they're, at, they're asking for another four grand, <laughs> or, or they're going to keep my deposit. So um, then, I, then we couldn't get them on the, on the phone, and they weren't answering, and they weren't responding to messages. I was just getting these automated emails saying, hey, you know, if you don't give us four grand by the 21st, we're going to keep your seventeen. Uh, okay. <laughs> Long story short, they're they're gonna give us a uh, a voucher for next year, assuming they're still in business. You know, this is a problem that a lot of people are running into. All of these companies, you don't know if they're going to be around a year from now to to make good on these vouchers. This is they're essentially making everybody holders of unsecured debt which if you're familiar with the bankruptcy process at all, those that are holding the unsecured debt are the last ones to get paid if there's anything left over after the bondholders and and the securitized debt and all that stuff gets paid out. So, uh, you know, if you've had flights that you've canceled 
or accommodations you've canceled. They're not giving you refunds. They're giving you credits. And, you know, it's not ideal. I wanted a full refund. I don't know if we're going to be able to do this trip next year. We're going to plan on it now, I guess, because we at least have somewhat of a down payment in on this. But you, you don't know if the company is going to be around. You don't want that money tied up for a year. I mean, like, you know, okay, two grand, but two grand for a year. Think of what you could do with that if you put it to, to good use. And then the other thing is now I'm going to have to argue with them about the final cost of this because when I booked that villa, it was October of 2019. And I was, you know, it was for the summer of the following year. There was no pandemic. There was no nothing. It was peak Italy season, summer in, in Florence, summer in Tuscany. Oh, okay, that that is you the highest possible price you could pay to stay in Italy is like late June, early July, exactly when we were going to be there. And now they're going to try to charge me that rate for 2021 Italy, which who knows what the hell that's going to look like after all this coronavirus stuff. So there's just no way that the going rate next year for this property is going to be anywhere near what I agreed to pay to it uh, for it back in October. So that's going to be the next battle I have with them is trying to pay the going rate of 2021 and not the rate of 2019 which I, I think I can make a pretty strong case there but you know we'll, we'll see it may end up being so much cheaper I mean I have no idea nobody knows how this is going to play out but it may be cheaper for me to eat the deposit and rebook a place I, I don't know how much these prices are gonna are gonna tumble so yeah that's that's what I've been up to <laughs> trying to get refunds canceling reservations and uh, taking care of a pooch. Oh, yeah, the last episode, I, I was interrupted with a delivery, a food delivery, right? If, if you guys haven't heard, you might get a kick out of that because I have this building policy where they won't let the delivery guy up anymore because of coronavirus. It doesn't make any sense. I went into it. I'm not going to go into it again. But long story short, I've been trying to time my deliveries so that there's nobody running interference between the door and my door so that I can just buzz these guys in and they can come up and bring me the food, right? I, if I have to put on pants and go downstairs and touch, you know, elevator buttons and open two doors, I might as well just go pick up the food myself. I mean, what's the difference? I, I've had to get dressed. Now I got to go, I, when I come back up, I got to like I got to sanitize everything. It's a huge pain in the ass. So I ordered some something. I uh, I guess it was dinner one of these nights, one of these past nights. Every week, you know, I try to, I have a lot of food on hand and I can cook and everything, but I've been trying to patronize the restaurants that I enjoy. Every week I, I place like an obscene order from one of my favorite places, just, you know, doing my part to try to keep them afloat through this. And so I, I placed this order and it was, you know, they had the option to, to leave it at your door. And, you know, I gave the, I, I put, you know, hit this number on the buzzer. I'll send you up, leave the food at my door kind of thing. And, you know, I'm sitting around waiting for the food 
And then I just happened to check the app. This is Door- DoorDash has been screwing me left and right. I The only reason I use it is because I get deals through the credit card I have. So I, I was checking the app to see like, oh, when's this guy going to come? And, it, and the app refreshes and it says, oh, your food was delivered. You want to rate your order? And I'm like, oh, oh, okay, the food's at my door. So I go and I open the door and there's no food there. It, it said that it had been delivered like uh, like seven minutes ago or something like that. And I didn't get any message from the driver, no phone call, no anything. So I'm like, oh, he must have just left it in the lobby. Sometimes they do that. And I'm getting all upset again. I'm calling him all kinds of names, putting on my pants, going downstairs. And, and I can see in the lobby and there's no food there. And then I can see through the door to the sidewalk. This motherfucker left like $60 worth of food sitting on the fucking sidewalk outside, outside the building. Now, who does that? Who in their right mind is like, oh, this is his door. 108 unit condo building. I'm just going to leave this on the sidewalk in the city. This isn't like the doorstep of a standalone single-family house. This is on a, a major street in Chicago. I mean, granted, it's less major with everybody quarantining, but what the hell, man? You're just going to leave my food on the fucking street? Anybody could have fucking taken that. Unbelievable. It, it is really unbelievable the lengths that the universe goes to fuck with me. I, I'm never amazed. And I'm, I'm sure you guys are starting to get a feel for it, too, at this point, because I, who else does this happen to? My one, the one thing that I want, and I tip, it's not like I gave this guy a shitty tip or something. I tipped him almost like 40%, an outrageous tip to just bring me the food to my door. I, I just want it brought to me. That, that, I want delivery. I don't want this like halfway stuff where I meet you at some certain point and we exchange uh, items. No, no. Uh, bring it to me. That's what I'm paying the delivery fee for. That's what I'm tipping you for to bring me the goddamn food. And this guy just leaves it on the street. Unreal. And, and it's just like they know it, it. It's like the universe knows that the last thing I want to do is go downstairs and get this food. And so that's what they're going to make me do no matter what. Anyway, how long have I been ranting about this? All right, about 15 minutes. Uh, hopefully uh, you guys are still listening because we did have some, like I alluded to earlier, some epic developments. I, we've never seen anything like this. I, I was going to say I've never seen anything like this, but nobody has. Oil, the, I was watching oil yesterday during during the trading day. This is in the morning. And it's just, I'm watching the spot price of oil, which is just what it costs for a, a barrel of crude oil, okay? And I'm just watching this thing sink like a stone. It was. It started out the day around $18, $19 a barrel, something like that. And by like, I don't know, about 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, it was around like $6 a barrel, something like that. And, and I, I start like texting. I'm like, are you guys watching oil? This thing is, it's at, it's at $5 a barrel. And by the time I would send the text, I was like, oh, it's at $3 a barrel. And then it touched zero. It went to a penny and it touched zero. They were giving away barrels of oil. Now that's the spot price. Like if you could just buy a barrel of oil right there and then on the spot, that's what you would pay for it. Nothing a penny 
a penny for so it, just to put that into perspective a cup of coffee from starbucks is like what three or four dollars at one point a, a, a barrel of oil and a cup of coffee were about the same price and then by the end of the day that they i think they halted trading because the market just completely collapsed by by the middle of the day it, it was a penny you could you could put this you know when i was a kid there was a penny store this was <laughs> i'm not that old i promise but there was one left in the in, maybe in the entire world and it was it just happened to be a couple blocks from where i grew up but it was a penny store and when i was really young i remember that thing existing like you would go in there and things would be a penny and now we have the dollar store and you can thank the federal reserve for that you know, all this inflation that they claim doesn't exist is the reason why what used to cost a penny now cost a dollar. But I tweeted out some joke about like, are they going to start stocking barrels of oil at the dollar tree? Because you can get them for less than a, they could be 10 for a dollar, 10 barrels of oil for a dollar. They'd, they'd be crushing it. They'd be crushing it. But the real disconnect in the market is the futures market. And I, I know Already, people are, are kind of getting freaked out because what the hell is the futures market? This gets really confusing. There's leverage. There's all these technical terms, these contracts. What's going on here? I'm going to try to break it down for everybody in the uh, simplest terms I can think of. And I, believe me, I'm no expert in this, but I, I do... I have some sort of an understanding for for the futures market and, you know, probably more than your average Joe. And I can at least give you the broad strokes of how this works and what's been going on for the last couple of days. So what happens with commodities, like you can't just go, like I was saying earlier, you can't just go buy that barrel of oil for a penny. Um, average retail investors like you and me, we can't do that, okay? W what you do is you go out into the futures market and you buy these contracts. And I think each contract is like a minimum of a 1,000 barrels or something like that. And the, the contracts expire every month on a given day. So you have the, the January contracts, the February contracts. You get the idea, right? So you have, in the futures market, you have people buying those contracts and you have people selling those contracts, okay? You're either, you're, you're long oil, you're buying it. You're short oil, you're selling it. So for the, the next contract, which the, the trading for it expired uh, today, I think, or it might've been yesterday or today, was the last day of trading for the May futures oil contracts, okay? And so up until that point, you have all of these buyers and sellers uh, trading these contracts around, okay? And what's going to happen in May when these contracts settle is the people that bought the oil are, are going to have to take delivery of that oil. And the people who sold the oil, who sold it short, are going to have to deliver it. And when you sell something short, and what that means is I don't have a thousand barrels of oil in my backyard. No, no. But I, I, I'm going to sell that short. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to promise 
somebody a thousand barrels of oil for the May contract delivery date. None of these guys really want to take delivery of all this oil. I mean, the, the guys who are long oil, they don't want all this oil. They don't need it. They don't have anywhere to put it. And the shorts are going to try to deliver it when that contract expires. So as the, the last trading day approaches, who's ever stuck holding that contract is going to get an oil delivery. I mean, there's going to be somebody with a truck backing up to their their house, <laughs> unloading a bunch of oil. So everyone's dumping these contracts left and right, and the price is just plummeting. You had to pay through the nose. You had to pay somebody almost $40 a barrel so that they wouldn't have to figure out what to do with all this oil so that they wouldn't be the ones that had to take delivery when the delivery date came. <laughs> it's unheard of. It's unheard of. But what's happening with oil is there's such a glut. There's such a glut of oil because we've been producing all of this oil. We have the the Saudis and the Russians going at it. Uh, they're in a bit of a, an oil battle. We have the, the Federal Reserve has been propping up a lot of the U.S. oil companies with artificially low interest rates, which has allowed them to stay in business longer than they would have, continuing to pump oil out of the ground, even though nobody needs it. And then we shut down the economy. So we, we shut everything down. Nobody's using anything. And all of this oil is still being pumped out of the ground, and nobody has a place to put it. All the tankers are full. All the storage facilities are full. So if you own one of these contracts, they're going to deliver it to you. Like somebody is going to pull up to your house with a truck full of oil and start beeping the horn. Like you have to take this oil. You, you agreed to this contract. You have to take it. Since there's such an oversupply and there is almost no demand in the world for oil because nobody's producing anything, nobody's doing anything, nobody's driving, nobody's traveling, nobody's doing anything. Everything in the economy has ground to a halt. So we don't need any of this oil. Nobody needs this oil. And yet we still have it. And we have more coming because they've been pumping it out of the ground. Like I said, artificially low interest rates, thanks to the Federal Reserve that we've covered on this show before, allowed oil companies to stay in business a lot longer than they normally would and keep pumping oil out of the ground, even though they were losing money, even though they were a, a failing company. But by shutting down the entire economy, now we have a, a tremendous oversupply of oil and nowhere to put it. Nobody would have thought in a million years that you would have to pay somebody to take your oil for you. Like, the, like it, it became garbage overnight. It, first it was you know worth a cup of coffee. Then you could buy 10 for the price of a cup of coffee. And now... It's like a bag of garbage. You have to pay somebody to come and pick it up and take it away and go put it in a landfill somewhere. That's what happened to the price of oil. And it's the market's way of telling you, stop pumping oil out of the ground. Just stop it. We don't need it. We don't need all this oil. We're not doing anything. Nobody's working. Nobody's producing. So please, for the love of God, stop pumping it out of the ground. It is, it is, it's not even worth nothing. It's costing us money. It's a waste of our resources. That's what losses tell you. Profits tell you that you're being a good steward of the economy's resources. 
and losses tell you that you're squandering them. And that's what this market is telling you. And the markets would have signaled this a lot earlier if we hadn't had all of this intervention from the Federal Reserve, suppressing interest rates, propping up failed companies. We would have gotten this signal a lot sooner and before it got to the point where where we are today with oil in negative territory. I mean, who would have thought in a million years that you could lose more than the cost, 100% of the cost of a barrel of oil? I mean, yeah, of course, up until yesterday, I would have said, okay, in theory, it could go to zero, but it's not going to go to zero. How could oil, how could a barrel of oil go to zero? Well, now we know. You, you shut down the economy. And, and it makes total sense if, if you think about it because there's, there's way too much oil and nobody needs it and nobody has a place to put it. So that was, uh, it's been a crazy couple of days in the markets and it's all driven by this oil oversupply and just being met with no demand whatsoever. And if they don't get this economy ramping up again, this is going to go on for a couple more months at least. The June contracts today, they collapsed. They were around mid-20s yesterday. They're now around, I think, $7 a barrel, something like that. And, I mean, they could go negative just like the maize did. And who knows what's going to happen in July. If they don't let um, if they don't let the economy start cranking stuff out again, we're we're gonna be in a world of hurt. All of these oil companies are are gonna be in big big trouble. And I do wanna I do wanna clear up a little confusion because people are talking about it. Oh, this is this is deflation. This is great. You know, we have uh, lower oil prices. That that's it's great for the consumer, right? It's cheaper to travel. It's cheaper to put gas in your car. But here's the thing, okay? Nobody's doing that. Nobody's traveling. Nobody's driving around in their car anymore. We're all sitting at home. That's why the price of oil is so low. That's why it's going negative, because nobody needs it. Nobody's using it. This isn't really deflation as much as it is just a complete collapse in the demand for oil. Demand for oil is going down because nobody's producing anything. We're producing less stuff and all of the oil that was used to produce all of the goods and services that society was doing a, a few months ago, well, that's no longer necessary. So what's actually going to happen here is while the, the price of oil is going down, well, that's great, except that w what difference does that make if you're never using any of the oil? If you're not traveling, who, who cares how cheap it is to travel, right? But since we're producing less stuff and we have, as we're going to see in a minute here, I have an article about this new bill that Congress just uh, agreed to terms on, is that we're going to have even more dollars in circulation. So we're, we're producing less stuff than we were before, and we have more dollars in circulation. So yeah, while the price of oil is going down, that's not going to really affect anybody's day-to-day -day life because nobody's doing anything. But the, the prices of things that you actually buy that we're no longer producing in larger quantities, those are going to go way up because we have, remember, we have more dollars in circulation and we have fewer goods and services from which to buy. So the, the price of everything that you're buying, I, I would expect to go up quite drastically, even while you're, you're seeing a collapse in the price of oil. So as I pointed out several episodes ago, my biggest fear going into this whole thing, or one of my biggest fears, 
was that we're going to be faced with with a situation where we've got the the Federal Reserve and our federal government creating ungodly amounts of money and just pumping them into the economy as fast as they can, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, and nobody's working, so nobody's producing anything, right? And, and that's just going to lead to increased prices. And that brings me to the article of the day. This is um, the Senate passes a $484 billion coronavirus funding bill. Now, this is in addition to all the other stuff they've passed. The Senate passed the $484 billion interim coronavirus funding bill on Thursday via voice vote following over a week of delay by top Democrats. The bill passed 12 days after the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was blocked from passing his $250 billion clean, quote-unquote, PPP bill. Paycheck Protection Plan is what that stands for. As Democrats demanded additional funding for state governments and hospitals. So $322 billion of the new package will go towards replenishing the Paycheck Protection Program that's the one where they're lending money. They're giving money to banks to lend to small businesses, and they ran through the first $250 billion. That, that was already gone. So now they've come out with another $322 billion, of which roughly $60 billion will be doled out by small lenders and community banks. The rest of the bill includes $75 billion for hospitals, $60 billion for the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program designed to help small businesses and communities in underserved areas, and $25 billion in expanded testing. Not included was $150 billion in aid for state and local governments sought by Democrats, according to Axios. So, you know, if you guys really want, you can dig into the gritty details of this. I, I've this is no different than the last one that they came up with, and I have the exact same objections to it as I did the the previous stimulus ones. And I, I went over some of the moral hazard that they're creating and the issues that I think are going to arise out of this. But what I want to focus on today is, is how this does not help the overall economy. It, it may seem like it does initially, but think back to what we were just talking about where we're not producing any more stuff. We're just flooding the markets, flooding the economy with cash, right? Because what gives money its value? Okay, we have to think about this because what's, what's the difference, right, between for this paycheck protection program, right? We're, we're essentially paying, when you strip out all the, the details of everything, Broad strokes, what's happening is we're paying companies, we're, we're giving companies money to pay their workers not to work, right? To give everybody a paycheck even though nobody's working. That's essentially what's going on here, okay? And what's the difference between a worker getting paid dollars for doing his job and a worker that's just being handed dollars while he sits around at home and watches Netflix, right? I mean, w w what difference does that make, right? He's still getting the money, and he can still buy things with the money, so what's the big deal? I mean, after all, why don't we just always do this? Why did we have to wait for this coronavirus to print up a bunch of money and give it to everybody? 
I mean, why even, why even collect taxes? Why, why go through that whole charade of collecting taxes if the government can just print all this money and buy, and buy everything that it needs? Give, it, give everybody money to buy everything that they need. There has to be some sort of downside here, right? Well, the problem is when you work for a paycheck, you are actually providing some sort of value to the overall economy. And your paycheck is a reflection of that. You're being paid commensurate with how much value you're creating for society. Every ethical dollar earned is a byproduct of value creation. Okay, uh, You're probably going to hear me say that a lot. I forget whose quote that is, but I, I love it. So uh, I will say it one more time. Every ethical dollar earned is a byproduct of value creation. The money has a relationship to the value you've provided society. So you provided a value to society through whatever work you were doing, and now you are given money to go buy a commensurate amount of goods and services from society. Okay, you're putting into society and you're taking out from society approximately the same amount because you're creating value and then you're given the dollars and then you can use those dollars to go buy however much value you created just in a different form, right? Does that make sense to everybody? Say yes. All right. So if money is just created, just printed, instead of you having to work for it, I just run it off a printing press and you don't create any value. You didn't do anything you didn't do anything productive and i just gave you all these dollars or maybe you actually did something it just wasn't productive like i i could i could have you dig a hole and then i could have somebody else fill that hole back in and i could pay you guys money for doing that but there's no value there at the end of the day we're in the exact same situation we were in you guys are just tired right so you are working for the sake of working if that's all you're doing, then that money has no value. All I've really done is given you the ability to try and claim more and more of the goods and services that society has already produced. There are no new goods and services coming into existence because, remember, nobody's working. So uh, we, we just printed up a bunch of money and gave it to people. All you're doing is increasing the demand for goods that society has already created with no new goods or services coming into existence. So if you look at the overall economy, we have fewer goods and services and more dollars chasing those goods. What's going to happen? Well, prices have to rise. Prices have to rise to meet that increase in demand. All money really does is enable everybody to allocate what's been collectively produced by society. And the more that you earn, the more you are able to consume because you've created more value. That's why you earned more money. So if you create more value, you earn more money, and then you can consume more goods. But that's what money does. Is just, it's just a way of divvying up everything that's already been produced. This is why I always talk about how uh, Keynesians and everyone in Washington, D.C. just happens to be a Keynesian. They've always got the economic cart before the horse. This is what I'm talking about. They seem to think that we can just give everyone money 
and all those dollars will have value and they can use those dollars to then buy all sorts of goods and services. But they've got it backwards. The dollars don't have any value. What gives the paper value, what gives those dollars value, or purchasing power, if you will, is all the stuff that's been produced by people and that we've agreed to exchange for those dollars. Without the stuff, it's all just paper, right? I mean, what determines how much you can get of something is how much you are able to produce. So if you take one thing, like corn, okay, and you're a farmer, if a farmer figures out a more efficient way of producing corn, he gets a better yield, you know, he can use the same amount of time and energy, put that into producing twice as much corn as before. And if we have the, the same amount of money in circulation, the money supply stays the same. Well, then now we can buy more corn because we've produced more corn. We have more goods and we have the same amount of dollars. Prices of corn will come down. So the more efficient we become, the cheaper the corn becomes and the more corn we all get to enjoy. But if the farmer doesn't produce any corn at all and we just print up a bunch of money, well, that doesn't do anything. The money doesn't create the corn. It's the corn that gives the value to the money. And if we only had corn and we had no money, we could still eat the corn, right? We would just have to find a, another way, some sort of way of divvying it all up that didn't involve the dollars. The corn is what has the value, not the paper. Now, back in the day when our dollar was backed by gold and silver, the, the precious metals, they had an intrinsic value. And it took effort and resources and time to mine those metals from the earth. So when you were exchanging gold and silver, when we were using gold and silver as money, and you were exchanging those for a good or service, you were actually exchanging two things that had intrinsic value. But the dollars, those are just pieces of paper. Like I said, all they merely represent is a way for society to divvy up everything that we've already produced. If we're not producing anything, they're just worthless pieces of paper. And if you can't spend the dollars, if, if there's nothing being produced that you can spend them on, what are they going to be worth? What, what can you do with them? This is why I always use that island analogy, right? Because our, our economy is so big and complex, people get really um, overwhelmed and confused with economic theory. But if it works on a small scale, it, it should work on a large scale, right? So strip out everything you know about the United States economy and just put a, put a bunch of people on an island, okay? Now, if there's nothing on the island, there's just a bunch of people there, and, and I fly by on my helicopter and dump a bunch of dollars on them, are they any better off than they were before? I mean, what, what can they do with those dollars? They can't go to the store and buy something. Nothing was produced. All right. I mean, yeah, they could use it for they could use it for fire. They could they could burn the money. That that's about as much worth as it has. You see, having the paper doesn't help you. We all need the stuff. That's what it's all about. And so, as long as the economy remains shut down and we're not producing any more goods and any more services, and Congress continues to pass these 500, 600 billion dollar, 2 trillion here, 2 trillion there. If they keep throwing money into this economy, all that's going to result from this 
aside from all the moral hazard of them bailing out uh, people that acted recklessly, and for the most part, what I mean by that are companies and investors that invested in some of this, um, th- these junk bonds that the Federal Reserve are buying. I mean, people, individuals definitely acted recklessly as well. Living paycheck to paycheck, not saving anything, is very reckless behavior. But if there's ever a case for giving people money, uh, the government giving people money, it would be when the government is forcing people to not work, is, is basically forcing them to stay in their house and not go to work. But in addition to all that moral hazard, all that's going to result from this eventually is inflation. It has to. It has to be because there, there's no other way for this to, to really play out. I mean, the inflation's already here. They've expanded the, the money supply. Look at the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Now it's just a matter of whether or not those dollars start to circulate through the economy and how quickly they change hands. If they don't open up this economy and they continue to pour money into it, we're going to have fewer and fewer goods being produced and larger and larger quantities of money changing hands and prices of everything will eventually rise, including oil. <laughs> once, we get, once they get rid of this um, oversupply of oil, the price of oil is going to go through the roof eventually. I don't know when that's going to happen. But it's not going to be negative $37 a barrel forever. So I know it's tempting and it's intuitive to just think, well, oh, you know, there's a problem. We need some stimulus. We, we need to get this. Uh, people need money in there. They have mortgages to pay. They have bills to pay. Congress needs to do something. Here's the problem. They're, they're sacrificing the long-term stability of the dollar for, for some short-term pain. We are distorting the supply and demand within the economy. There are companies that are producing things that we may not need them to produce, like in the case of this oil. It just hasn't materialized yet. It hasn't become blatantly obvious because the bubble hasn't been pricked yet. But this is all going to bubble up to the surface. And the effects of, of this monetary policy and the effects of, of just shutting down this economy, shutting down the world economy for extended periods of time are going to be profound. And they're going to be far worse if we continue to, to try to stimulate our way out of this than if we let the market forces allocate these resources, reallocate these resources, let prices adjust, let, let companies that, that shouldn't be doing what they're doing fail. And, you know, that's I, I don't say that lightly. I, I realize that there people's livelihoods are at stake, but far more people are at risk here if we continue down this path, this this path that is starting to look like massive inflation and, and, and crazy increases in prices, which, by the way, hurt the poorest among us first. But if we continue down this path, and we keep exacerbating these problems instead of letting the market heal. And the goal of an economy is to take a finite amount of resources and allocate them as efficiently as possible. That's what the economy is trying to do constantly, and that's what the Federal Reserve and our federal government is constantly undermining with all of their intervention. The problems we are going to face are going to be so much worse than the can where we continue to kick down the road, and they're going to hurt far more people, and it's going to be the poorest, 
and the most vulnerable among us that bear the brunt of this. And this can really spiral out of control in a hurry. So we, we have massive structural problems in our economy, and you cannot continue to not deal with those. We have to, we have to get this economy back on solid footing to avoid the fates of the Venezuelas of the world, okay? That, that's what's at stake here. So yes, there are certainly a percentage of people that are going to go through some really tough times. And, you know, it, it's up to the, the, the rest of us who, who are able to weather that storm to take care of those people as best we can. But we cannot sacrifice the, the long-term stability of the country, 320 million people's livelihoods, in a futile attempt at avoiding some short-term pain for a small number of people, relatively speaking. Because the fact of the matter is, this pain is coming one way or another. The longer we push it off, the longer we kick that can down the road, the more people it's going to hurt. The, the bigger the, the problem gets, the more pain we're all going to experience. So we might as well get it over with now. Deal with this now. Let's rip the Band-Aid off. Let's finally deal with these problems that have been brewing for 20 years. And then we can head down the path toward rebuilding the economy. So I'm going to wrap there, guys. <laughs> it looks hopefully we only have another couple of weeks of this. It's uh, we're, we're coming down to the end of April here. They're, they're talking May 1st. I don't know what a return to normal looks like at this point, but stay safe. Be good. Make sure you download and subscribe and share the show with somebody that you know because i'm sure there's a lot of people wondering what the hell has been going on with this oil stuff how can oil go negative for a day well i i think i gave you a pretty good explanation and i'm sure you know somebody who would like to hear it so share the show follow me on twitter at pedal fiction and if you want to become a supporting listener of the show you can go to pedalingfictionpodcast.com and if you can do all that for me i will be back later this week with a brand new episode for you until then, just remember to keep on peddling that so-called fiction.